the uh, people were applauding him and uh, his opinion polls were very high. He was, his party was supporting him and uh, everything was, was going well. And then we're told he sent the crowds away and went up the mountains to pray by himself. So here's a, something we can translate into our own daily life if, if we've integrated or if we're integrating the times of meditation into every day, not just the good days or the bad days. When I uh, first started to meditate, um, it took me several years. I didn't have any support really or any groups. I was been introduced to meditation, I believed in it, but uh, I didn't practice it. Uh, but I did occasionally, usually I think not, uh, usually when I was feeling rather pious or rather holy, which, you know, my early twenties was not very often, <laughs> but when I did, uh, then I would make the time to meditate. And then usually the experience of failure or not being able to understand what the experience meant meant that I give up I gave up very quickly and uh, we need this extension this exposure of time uh, and regularity of fidelity as I was saying the other day we need this fidelity extended over time through the dimension of time before the experience begins to become meaningful, otherwise it's just a flash in the pan. We don't see it as part of something uh, continuing and, and, and stable. Anyway, so here we see Jesus uh, detaching himself from success. It's equally difficult for us to meditate, for example, on, the, on, on really good days or really bad days. The easiest times to meditate are when nothing particularly happens. But then if you get bored, uh, because nothing particular has happened for a few days, you might get bored with meditation as well, because you realise that meditation is not making anything happen very dramatically. So we tend to look for ex uh, heightened experience, so for, for drama or for good surprises or even perhaps even bad surprises. I did meet a man once who had lost his leg tragically in a, a, a car accident. He'd been knocked over by a motorbike. And uh, he'd been, he told me, he'd been in a, uh, a period of prolonged depression before that and uh, sort of darkness and he said, as he lay there on the, on the street, realizing what had happened, he, the, this phrase flashed through his mind, even surprising him at that moment, which was, at least something has happened. Which <laughs> is pretty desperate. But uh, it anyway, seemed to shock him out of his uh, depression. But... Uh, one of the things we fear most is that nothing will happen. And yet, of course, if we had a choice, we would always choose something pleasant and something good to happen. 
Simon Vey says that there are two God sends uh, the messages uh, through through two kinds of messengers, um, and happiness and suffering, good things and bad things, good days and bad days. And she said, we have to get to the point where we can see that these are messages of love. And if a, a lover is sending a message to someone he or she loves, it doesn't really matter what the messenger looks like. What matters is the message. Now that, uh, you might say, takes a fairly high level of detachment to be able to be indifferent to what the messenger looks like. Does it come wrapped up in happiness or does it come wrapped up for the time being as something challenging or difficult? So, and yet there's a truth in that, that I th a deep truth in that, really, which I think meditation helps us gradually to recognize and appreciate. And of course, this opens us for happiness in its true state, the true happiness that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, or the happiness, the joy of being, which uh, the kingdom experience, the kingdom of God, uh, opens for us. Um, and this true happiness is different from the short-term happiness that comes and goes, or good days or bad days. And the short-term happiness is not to be sneezed at either, but uh, we have to recognize it for what it is. If we try to hang on to the short bursts of happiness that come, and we try to possess them, we try to repeat them, we try to hold them, then of course our, our disappointment will be even worse when they, when they pass away with the flow of time. So it makes sense for us if we want to be truly happy, if we want to reach this kingdom, if we want to live in the kingdom, if we want to uh, open ourselves to the, the joy of being rather than the joy or the pleasure of having, big difference between being and having, then uh, according to the wisdom of the tradition that we're listening to this week, the tradition of the desert especially, uh, this is something we have to train ourselves in. And after all, it's something we train children in. We, we, we train children not, we, we hopefully, not to demand instant gratification all the time. We, we give them treats, but you can't give children treats all the time. Otherwise, you spoil them. So this isn't any esoteric wisdom. This is simple training of character and preparing ourselves for life as it is going to be lived. So this is uh, something we might, we maybe we're reading too much into this, but I think the idea that Jesus leaves the crowd just when the crowd is applauding him and praising him, and he's not working the crowd, he's not trying to 
manipulate or possess the, uh, the, the, the success, there's a, a lesson in here for us. And the lesson is, could be described as indifference or detachment. And these are two words that really have, each of them has two meanings. If you go into a uh, shop and the uh, sales assistant doesn't look at you and is clearly much more interested in sending his text messages rather than serving you as a customer, you know, that's a certain kind of indifference. I don't care, you know, I couldn't care less. If you ask them, do you have such and such a thing? And they will say no immediately because they couldn't be bothered to go and find out. Well, that's one kind of depressing uh, indifference. And that's a cold kind of detachment. It suggests isolation. Leave me alone. Don't bother me. Uh, I'm not going to even try to connect with you or this situation because it... Uh, it might disappoint me, or I just haven't got the energy to do it. But there's another meaning in detachment or indifference. And that is that I care. I do care. And I will do my best. But I will not be attached to the fruit of my actions. This is a a major theme of the Bhagavad Gita, of course, of Karma Yoga. Um, I read a very interesting article sent to me recently from the Times of India, um, one of the only national newspapers that would, would run such a, 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 a column, an article on uh, Karma Yoga in, in daily life, in, in the business world. Uh, basing itself on the teachings of the, the Gita. So, in other words, we have our work to do. We accept that work, that responsibility. We do it as well as we can. And, of course, we want it to produce good results. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it as well as we can. But we are detached from the fruits of our labours, which suggests, for example, a pure motive. You're doing this work for its own sake or for the good of others, not for what you get out of it, not for the reward or, the, or even the pleasure or the gratitude of others or the recognition or reputation that you might get from being uh, applauded or being successful. And being alert to that is one of the fruits of meditation. Being able to, to, to spot quickly and immediately when you start to become attached to the fruits of what you're doing, when you begin to expect other people to applaud you or recognize you, uh, or you demand that, or you become angry or sad if you don't get it, 
or you become, of course, on the other hand, you become uh, uh, rather pleased with yourself and, and rather puffed up uh, if you do get uh, praise. Sometimes, you know, people praise you for doing something and you, you think, well, that's really out of proportion. What I did was, I didn't do very much, actually. I didn't know the musician might give a, a great, uh, might play as well as they can. And then everybody stands up and gives him a standing ovation uh, because it just touched something in them at that moment. But you'd say, well, I'm glad they enjoyed it, but um, it's a little bit over the top. You know, in American audiences, they always tend to stand up and give a standing ovation um, as, a, as a matter of course. Anyway, so this, this quality of a detachment or indifference actually sets us free. This is the purpose of it. It's not that we become cold or indifferent in a negative sense. This is something we can be aware of and alert to and take steps to correct, for example, if we find ourselves falling into attachment. We start get demanding something or trying to possess something. We can spot that and then maybe we need to go up to the mountains to pray to make sure that uh, we, can, we can step out of that and break that cycle of the ego. And sitting to meditate every day uh, is, is, uh, is, is doing that most, most of the time. Uh, those two meditations a day would be enough to clear this, this inevitable process of attachment. The problem is, of course, until this good habit of meditation is established in your life, um, it will be likely that you don't meditate on those very days that you should that you really need to. So these may be the very good days or the very bad days when you're most likely to get attached or get disappointed. And uh, the sign that, that this practice is entering now into your life and weaving itself into your life, and that's a wonderful gift to be able to <coughs> develop a contemplative thread, a contemplative dimension to your life in this way, uh, the sign that that is happening is that you meditate whatever kind of day you've had. And that quite naturally then gives you a new level of peace and a new kind of resilience to change. The higher awareness then, the higher level of awareness that comes with any contemplative practice uh, brings about this quality of detachment quite naturally. You don't even have to try too hard to do it. You'll be more aware, awake to those moments when you do begin to attach positively or negatively to either of the kinds of messengers that are coming to you. Uh, so you'll be more aware of it. But uh, you'll also just find yourself much more intuitively and naturally uh, stepping back from attachment.
Now that sounds a bit, uh, a bit cold, perhaps, or the word attachment, detachment, or the word indifference, uh, are slightly negative-sounding words for us, even when we try to understand them in this way. The uh, the word that the desert teachers used to use was apatheia. Apatheia, which sounds like apathy to us, but it's the opposite of apathy. Apatheia means without the passions. Apatheia. And the, think of the passion of Christ. Okay. Well, uh, it's a slightly different sense. Because in, in the way that uh, it was used uh, by the desert uh, monks, uh, passion described a, a, a kind of attachment or a, a disordered feeling. Um, you know, inability to control your anger or addiction or fantasy or any, any kind of uh, habit, really, or pattern of behavior that you would normally, if it got too bad, you would go to a therapist to try to, uh, to sort out, or you try and sort out for yourself at Lent. And, uh, but, so this is what they meant by passion. So apatheia meant without this disordered, dysfunctional patterns, a pattern of behavior. And so apathy was described as the health of the soul. Apatheia is harmony. It's when all the different aspects of our mind and body and all the interfaces between mental and physical life and consciousness, that these are of, of flowing together nicely, in harmony together. And there's a great strength in that because it enables you to deal with ups and downs without being too up or too down. And again, we shouldn't think of this as too esoteric or too superior a kind of spiritual achievement. I was talking to a group of, uh, of boys at a high school once who'd been meditating for a few years and uh, had a very good teacher who they admired very much and uh, it helped them to make med understand and to practice meditation. And they were all at the point, uh, they were about to leave school, but they were all also reflecting on, on what a gift the meditation had been to them in these early formative years of their adolescence. And they were saying uh, how they noticed this, what a, a value this gift was because uh, they saw in their friends who went to other schools or didn't meditate and didn't meditate, they saw um, a dysfunctionality. They would see them uh, shoot up, you know, and over, you know, get, what's that? Over the top, overreact to, the, to, to good news and so on. And then when things change, crash and go into deep and dark despair. And they were able to see this in their friends. And they knew that although they were living perfectly ordinary teenage lives, uh, 
uh, they weren't desert monks, but they had discovered this in themselves and were able to recognize it as a gift that they'd received and something that they wanted to share with others. So they were saying to me, how do you think we could, we could do this? You know, how, how could we talk, share this with our friends or when they go to university? They were also a bit anxious that when they left the supportive environment of the school where they were meditating every day and went to university, they'd be on their own and wouldn't have that support structure. So, so this isn't something very esoteric. This is something that comes quite naturally and grows uh, you know, from an early age if we are introduced to it. So this apatheia doesn't mean that your desire for things disappears or that your enjoyment of things disappears, which would be a very bland, black and white kind of existence. But that there is no attachment and therefore uh, no addiction involved in those desires, no compulsiveness. There's a freedom in being able, <coughs> what St. Paul says somewhere, I, I'm fully acquainted with the human lot. I've known what it is to be riding the crest of the wave and to have everything on a platter, and I, I know what it is to have nothing and to be rejected and to be in failure. And he says, all of this is garbage compared with knowing Christ Jesus. So, uh, the uh, inevitable uh, pro product of disordered passion disordered desire uh, with attachment is fantasy. And we live in a very fantasy-controlled world. We don't know whether we are being fed fantasies on the news half the time, whether these, this is true news or fake news. And, uh, of course, we, we live in an entertainment media-saturated culture uh, where we are constantly fed uh, fantasy of varying various kinds. So the ability to step out of that, to go up to the mountains to pray, to go into the desert, to take these times of silence and solitude in our daily meditation, is a very great gift. We have to be aware of it, we have to be introduced to it, and we have to learn it. It's something that comes naturally to us, especially as young children who just choose to meditate when they need it. One little girl said to me once, I said, do you like to meditate at other times? She says, yes, I meditate. I said, when, when do you meditate? Uh, at home? She said, yes. She said, usually, I'm always fighting with my little sister. And uh, when I have a fight with my sister, I usually then go and meditate. <laughs> now, why does she do that? She does it because she doesn't like being in that state of upset or anger or sadness or disruption. And she just knows intuitively 
It's a pity, you know, that the Russians and the Syrians and the Americans and the British uh, diplomats, you know, and the French and everybody else uh, weren't able to have that same kind of intuitive wisdom. When those feelings become strong, instead of feeding them or hiding them, you, you, you step aside from them and let them, let them uh, decline. I once asked uh, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew in, in Singapore, the founding father, the first political father of uh, Singapore, uh, if he, who started, who learned to meditate uh, later in his life, and I asked him once if he would recommend political leaders to meditate when they came together for their summit meetings. The G7 has just met uh, without coming to any real decisions. And uh, he said, uh, well, he looked at me, smiled at my naivety, and he said, well, I don't really think uh, it's likely that they would agree to meditate if, uh, you know, they'd come from all over the world and they all had big agendas in a short amount of time together and probably not, you're not going to persuade them to meditate. So I said, well, that isn't exactly what I asked. I said, would you advise them to meditate? And then he got it and he said, yes, I would. I would. Especially if there was any prospect of the conversations leading to violent outcomes. Then, he said, I would advise them to meditate all day. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, rather like this little girl, he said when he had big decisions to make, he would meditate more often. Again, he wasn't a religious man, or he said he was not a religious man. So he was, he was simply obeying or listening to his own experience. As a father say, experience is your teacher. So he was being taught by his own experience that the mind is karma, that there's greater balance, greater clarity uh, with and after meditation, and your decisions will be much more um, useful. So life has its ups and downs, but we can find a still point, a calmness at the center of the storm, Evagrius, one of the more intellectual of the Desert Fathers, one of the good psychologists too, of the Desert tradition, said that one of the signs that you are growing in apatheia is when you have disturbing images during your dreams at night, but you remain calm in the face of these disturbing images. So even in the, even in the psyche, where there are ups and downs, it has its own autonomous uh, life, you know, weather patterns of the psyche, the unconscious, it's always surprising us. Then, um, even then, we can still, we can still remain <coughs> centred in the face of this interior disturbance of the unconscious. So what this teaches us is about the nature of desire and the real meaning of happiness. Basically, that desire 
that the satisfaction of our desires doesn't lead to lasting happiness. Don't expect to be truly and permanently happy uh, just because you have got what you want. It's hard to practice detachment. Perhaps it's equally hard to meditate on the day where you won the lottery. You won $100 million on the lottery. You didn't have to do any more fundraising. It might be more difficult to meditate, just as difficult to meditate on those days as it would be on those days where you didn't hit your target or that you lost something or you were disappointed. So highs or lows offer us almost an equal opportunity to practice detachment. And the work of detachment involves this work of silence, letting go of the fantasy woven through images and thoughts and daydreams that constantly occupy our minds. Letting go of that in the work of meditation is the work of silence. So it isn't enough just to go up the mountainside <coughs> or just to come to Bear Island on a retreat or just to sit quietly in a corner of your room. Uh, and it's not just the, with the physical action, the withdrawal, some level of solitude or withdrawal from activity is necessary, even if you're at home with a family all around you and you just say, I'm going to meditate now. You go into your room and you close the door and you meditate. And your family know, will support you in that because they see that you're much easier to live with when you're meditating. So they'll encourage you to meditate. Uh, so it isn't enough just to go into the inner room and close the door. Jesus says, pray. Pray there. So it's not just going off to a spa. It's not just about changing the environment. You, you then have to do this work. And, the, and prayer is the work of silence or the work of attention. That's what we do in meditation as we say the mantra. The surprising and wonderful discovery that comes to any meditator who, who begins to develop this as part of their daily life is that this not only brings about a personal transformation through the benefits and the fruits. You notice the difference, even in a short period of time. If you're doing it regularly, you'll notice it quite quickly. And even then, it's still, it can still be challenging uh, to keep up the, the daily discipline. But it, you, you, you notice it not only as something that affects you, important though that may be, but it opens you to silence 
as a universal web, a web of silence. And remember what silence is. It's not negativity. Silence is pulsating with attention, with love, with consciousness, with wakefulness. So it's, we, we become aware that silence and the silence that we are experiencing to whatever degree is actually a universal web that connects everything. And we could call it God's presence. And it's present through connection, through relationship, everywhere, every, and every when that it penetrates through or it passes through all the dimensions of time and space. The French uh, philosopher Pascal, <coughs> one of his pensées, said, the, eter <coughs> the eternal silence of infinite space terrifies me. <coughs> and at first, it may be frightening to realize that this uh, presence is there. It's one of the meanings of the fear of God. The fear of God does not mean that we're frightened of, of being punished by God or sent to hell. <coughs> the fear of God originally meant the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, it says in the Psalms. The fear of God means precisely this awareness of how great the mystery is, how, how eternal the silence is, and how infinite is the space which it fills. And it's when we become silent, when we begin to taste, of, even to a very small degree, we begin to understand what silence means, we become aware of the silence extending in all directions and in all dimensions around us. So in our kind of culture, our kind of world, a world of profit and measurable value, everything has a price, silence is very countercultural, very subversive in fact. And even though we see many corporations and professions uh, becoming interested in meditation, or forms of mindfulness, which is not quite the same thing, but getting that. Even though we see a lot of interest in this because they are aware of just how dysfunctional we are, how much burnout there is, how much time and Profit is lost because of people getting stressed out and burnt out and unable to handle the stress of their jobs. So they, so they become interested in meditation largely through a desire to make people happier because they will be more productive. At least this is how it's presented. This is how they justify it. And it's the beginning, so one shouldn't say no to that. It's like if somebody came to church and said, you know, I'm not particularly interested in what you believe, 
but it's a very nice community <laughs> you have here. No, I really like the coffee after, after the service. The service is a bit boring, but uh, very nice people. Well, you wouldn't say, well, go away. You wouldn't give them a, a, a belief check, a questionnaire to check their belief. You would, you would take them where they're at and hope that, and be glad, actually, that they are experiencing this friendship and welcome. Uh, that, it, that it must be a sign of your own faith or the presence of God in you and in your community, uh, communicating itself to them. But as soon as we begin to speak about meditation in its more essential meaning, its deeper meaning, in this understanding of the work of silence, it's easily ridiculed or people would brush it away as being, well, that's, uh, you know, that doesn't concern us. We're really just, we just want to make sure that our workforce is um, less stressed and doesn't, doesn't take so much time off work. Um, it's uh, in, in, certainly in Britain now, the Charity Commission shows this tendency of um, making everything measurable. If you want to set up a new charity, partly because they're frightened of money laundering uh, or terrorist kind of organizations setting themselves up as charities perhaps, but you have to prove that you are doing something measurably good for society. I don't think, you know, a contemplative community uh, just you know, praying, meditating every day uh, in the classic sort of picture we have of it uh, would pass the test. And maybe even Jesus wouldn't have been able to set up a, chari a charitable um, trust because he didn't seem to be very successful. So we have to be very alert to this tendency to instrumentalize everything, including meditation, to turn it into something measurable with outcomes that we can define and be proud about. It's not to say that uh, you couldn't find good and valuable outcomes of I even a contemplative community that didn't seem to be doing anything, but it would be very difficult to prove under contemporary um, regulations. So our attachment to results, to things that we can measure, success or failure, good or bad meditations, good or bad moods, our attachment to measurable results is something to be alert to and, and careful about because it locks us into the dimensions of the past and the future. We're always measuring ourselves by the standards or the records that we, that we made yesterday or last year as if they were sort of sales figures. So we're measuring ourselves by reference to the past, and we are planning uh, 
ourselves into the future with our goals and objectives. Now, in practical, pragmatic terms, this is something we probably have to do uh, to operate in the, in the world. But I've met many very inspiring and inspired leaders who have brought about great change in their profession or in their organizations who really don't um, care very much for all of the strategy documents that are being produced all the time and being presented to, to them in unreadable, unreadable length and formats. They just don't take it very seriously uh, or they don't spend too much time on it. They, they have a, a kind of strategy, a different kind of strategy, a different kind of way of planning. And I think these, when I've met these kind of leaders, uh, they are contemplative leaders, really, because they're very inserted into the present. Of course, they know, you know what happened in the past and what the problems what problems are being created, and they know, have a sense of how it should be better. But they're not drawn too much into the past or the future. They are really inserted, they have an observation point in the present. And uh, this makes them better leaders and better managers and better professionals. This is, what, this is what I mean by contemplative um, awareness, which comes out of the present. If we're too attached to results, we will, be too, we will equally be attached to our strategies projected into the future, which are largely fantasy. We constantly will then constantly slide away from the present. It will seem as if the present doesn't really even exist. There's only the past and the future, because the present is just the tick of, a, of the second hand on the clock, or even, even with some digital devices now, you know, tenths of seconds. So the present is simply this rapid uh, turning over of the page without time given to reading what is on the page. It would be like sitting with a book and just turning the pages without reading what's on the page. And that's how we can live easily, fall into that habit of, into that habit of not being in the present. We think that the present is fleeting, temporary, meaningless, whereas in fact, it is the only thing that is. There is only the present. It's the, it's the only thing that is permanent, paradoxically. And we call this, or well, this the desert uh, tradition and the Christian mystical tradition in the Eastern Church called it Hezekiah. Hezekiah could be translated either as stillness or silence, and also contains the idea of solitude. It, it, it says that we can find Hezekiah. This is something we should be aiming at, or opening ourselves to, training ourselves for, because it's the stillness at the eye of the storm. It's this Hezekiah that is translated 
as rest. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. I will give you Hezekiah. And this stillness and peace is not, is not an evasion or an escape from reality. It is the renewable energy at the center of reality. It is the most real thing in our world and in our consciousness. So let's um, do a little bit of Hezekiah and uh, come maybe come back to this tomorrow. The, um, we've been looking at the, uh, each of the, or going through the seven last words of Jesus, the sayings of Jesus from the cross. And the one that um, we can listen to today is uh, from John 19.20. It follows immediately after what we heard this morning where Jesus looks at his mother and John, the beloved disciple, and says to her, this is, there, there is your son, and to the disciples, there is your mother. And after that, Jesus, aware that all had now come to its appointed end, said in fulfillment of scripture, I thirst. I thirst. Jesus, aware that all had now come to its appointed end, said in fulfillment of scripture, I thirst. A jar stood there full of sour wine, so they soaked a sponge with the wine, fixed it on a javelin and held it up to his lips. So let's again take a moment to prepare for meditation, take a few moments to loosen up your neck around, shoulders, just remind yourself that you have a more or less functioning body. that we are embodied beings, that the body is our greatest ally and friend in helping us to live in the present. We can trust the body because the body never lies. So relax your shoulders, relax the muscles of your face, Take a few deep breaths just to refresh. 
clear your throat or blow your nose. Close your eyes lightly. <coughs> and then silently, in your mind, in your heart, begin to say your word. Listening to the mantra as you repeat it, giving it your attention, and remembering that meditation is not about blanking out the mind, or achieving good results. We don't have to call any meditation good or bad. Because meditation is about returning to the mantra. If you are, however distracted you are, however long you've been distracted, by your thoughts, by your attachments, by your patterns of feeling. When you return to the mantra, drop the thought and return to the mantra, you are meditating. 